I would like, if I may, to take you on a really fucking strange journey. to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. Today is October 21st, and I just got back from Texas. Yeehaw. I have a pretty damn good show for you this week. We're going to start off with Militant Eroticism, Episode 17, You Lied About My Foreskin. And then Agent Provocateur, Episode 17 as well, Darren decides three-point program to stop terrorism. And Creature feature. That's right, I'm going old school. I'm going to give you an interview. I talked to Morgan O'Shaughnessy, a violist, wonderful gent, great conversation, and you're going to get a little classical music out of it. So look forward to that at the tail end. But before we start, next week, next week is Halloween. I love Halloween. (laughs) I think it's safe to assume anyone who's listening to this podcast really either Uh, really enjoys or absolutely is obsessed with Halloween. And I am no different. Uh, I love dressing up. I love the movies. I love the sounds. I love the time of year, the leaves changing colors and dropping on the ground. I love everything about it. The brisk, cold bite in the air. It is so nice. And, uh, well, next week I'm going to give you a Halloween present. The Greater Magic episode with Magus Peter H. Gilmore and Magister Michael Rose. It is good. Do not miss it. I'm going to be doing it on YouTube. I'm going to be doing it on, uh, I don't know, wherever fine podcasts are <laughs> downloaded. <laughs> Pretty much everywhere this show is available. You know, you know, you by now you know where it is. Um, I would like to thank everyone for all the wonderful interaction in social networking. Keep it up, people. I really appreciate you sharing posts and talking about Nine Cents and uh, liking and commenting on any post that happens to be put up. Uh, If you are following us on social networking, uh, I tend to throw up images from time to time. So, you know, not all of them last very long, more just like commentary because I don't actually have a social networking presence myself. Uh, I sort of just piggyback on on top of the nine cents pages. Um, So, you know, if you want to get a little extra of that, uh, that's where you're going to get it. You got a couple of those posts this weekend, and that was when I was in Texas. So, Texas, how do I I talk about this trip? It has been a long, strange trip. Um, So I went to Texas with my family to visit some old friends, uh, friends that I consider uh, genuinely close. And I say that because I don't... (laughs) I don't mean this to sound pathetic. I don't have a lot of friends. Uh, the friends that I have, I I truly cherish and I, I keep close and I do everything I can for them. Uh, and so, you know, visiting Texas to see them after not having seen them for a year just kind of made sense. And Texas is sort of the worst of America, I'm going to say. Uh, it is the absolute worst of America. One... It's just sort of in the middle of America in the south, so there's no mountains, nothing, 
there's water features. You got lakes, you got ponds, you got the ocean, but big fucking deal. It's not as great as the east or west coast. Um, and then you have the people. And there are sort of two different types of people. I'm going to say three, di- three different types of people in Texas. You have the native shit-kicking, horrible human being population. You have the people that went there for whatever business or economic reasons, which are just normal people, but, you know, they kind of get swallowed up by the natives. And then you have, um, maybe there are only two. <laughs> I don't know. The people I met from Texas uh, when I was there that I enjoyed, they weren't from Texas. (laughs) They were all sort of immigrants to Texas from other places. And Texas is such a horrible shithole of a state. I know everyone loves it because there's low taxes and it's great corporate environment, but there's literally nothing there. You could go to any place in the entire world and it would be exactly the same as Texas. Oh, the third one I was going to say was hipsters that love to act like Texas is some sort of like hipster hub of life, but really it's just a shithole and you don't know any fucking better. Nothing good about Texas. Um... I don't, I don't, I don't understand why people go there if it's not for business. And then I understand why businesses go there, but then economically, uh, Texas is, uh, well, there are consequences <laughs> and, and reasons why people think it's a show. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, enough ragging on Texas. Um, my friends, <laughs> fuck man, let's just say I did not do everything <laughs> Or everyone that I wanted to do in Texas. <laughs> no. Um, uh, they're great people. They were gracious enough to host us in their home and um, take care of us. Um, and literally every night we drank very, very heavily. And we, you know, sort of opened up another Pandora's box door. What's your pleasure, sir? But, um, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't think I'll be going back to Texas. Uh, it just wasn't, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> I don't know. I hope to see my friends again, but they are going to have to drive their asses up here. Let me put it like this. Um, and maybe this is a statement. This is a, co- a social commentary on on how I am as an individual and probably why I have so few friends. Um, these people that I met, see, my friends are really great. They, they talk me up. But then I feel like I had to perform in some way. So when they brought their f- local friends to meet me, my you know, their out-of-state friend, I felt like I had to sort of perform. And so, you know, what goes with their expectations is, A, I'm a Satanist, B, I speak my mind, and see, I have no boundaries. So I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not averse to showing a, um, <laughs> a man cunt. I don't, I guess you would call it <laughs> if you tuck your, your jaw, your junk between your legs and, uh, you know, just sort of stand there. I'm not averse to that. I'm not as averse to, um, pulling my dick out. I'm not averse to asking about the lubrication status of one's vagina. So this all may seem crazy crass in uh, just 
open circles, but these are my close friends. And so it's, you know, the majority of what I'm saying and doing is joke, um, a little bit for entertainment and shock value. And then a little bit because I'm curious. I'm <laughs> just... This is how I am. So these people meet me for the first time and we're talking about, and to, to be fair, this is my friend who brought this up. Uh, we're talking about uh, ballistic distance in one's ejaculate. We're talking about um, the, I, I don't even know if this is the right word, the vasticity, vasticity of one's vagina. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about a lot of things that, that uh, if you are not, as comfortable with us as we are with ourselves may make you feel very uncomfortable. And so there might have been a little more imbibing in order to take <laughs> the night. Um, there might have been a little bit of uh, uncomfortable situations of uh, sights and sounds and exposures and underexposures and stuff like that. But it, it was uh, all in all, it was, it was, it was fun, I will say. Uh, I did end up playing some video games I'd never played before, which is interesting. Um, but really it just came down to being around old friends, which, which is always good. I didn't really learn anything new about them. Um, just sort of a reemergence of old behaviors, um, to keep it vague. But yeah, I don't, I don't see myself going back to Texas ever. Sorry, Texas. <laughs> I know you're sad, but yeah, I don't know. And and the, here's here's maybe a, a question to you the audience. When you're when you're going to see old friends or or you haven't seen those that you consider loved ones for quite some time, but you you don't really want to go to the environment that they exist in. Do you just hold out and just hope that they come to you at some point? Do you bite the bullet and you go see them? Um, you know, let me know. Let me know what you think. Uh, I, for one, I would really love to see them here again. I understand what it means to be out of your element and to, you know, take that leap. But I don't know. I, you know, and as always, I'm a bit dramatic with things. And so I think this may be the last time I see them. I don't want it to be, but I kind of get that impression. So, you know, you know, when you, you have old friends that move away or you just sort of grow apart, uh, I've lost a lot of close friends because of that. And it seems to the older I get, sort of ramp up the amount of friends I lose because we just sort of go our different ways. We're not as simpatico or maybe as necessary to each other as we once were, which I, you know, it's sort of the course of friendship. I guess it's hard to maintain friends for, for very long. Um, you know, these friends I've had for a decade and some of them that I've recently lost more than that, you know, almost two decades, quite literally. So it's normal to, to sort of grow away from people, uh, friends, lovers, etc. But it doesn't make it any less sad. <laughs> Not that I'm sad about it, just, you know, you get a little melancholy from time to time thinking about it. Um, I'm not right now, but you know, you know what I mean. I got to go get an allergy shot here soon, so I'm going to stop talking about that. Um, but just to my friends, if they're listening, I know from time to time they tune in. Thank you. I hope to see you again. And if I don't, I completely understand.
Um, all right, and for the rest of you, this episode, I'm going to be really just cutting it from segment to segment. Everything's pre-recorded, everything's taken care of, so I will see you on the other end as uh, we close down the show. The top hated and the low browed. With a scarlet passion and brother gospel, I say to you, thou in sick style of remoted altars, be not of love, but of lust, and to one of those full ears of bellies full. Expand your genital rebellion to vindicate the shrewd. Let thy brothel be revelation, then thy moans are divine wisdom. Salvation in the whole religion. Our dogma is their kink. With legs spread, with flesh mounted, we point out to our accusers a slut alone is no slut at all. This I say to you, my fellow eroticists, my hands on borders. It doesn't matter who bends over. In the end, we are all degraded. Welcome to Militant Eroticism. I am a den or den. One of the oldest religious rituals practiced in our species is circumcision. This is cross-cultural, with variations of how much is cut and at what age depending on the culture one is discussing. Some cultures, like ours, only remove the ridge band, which is removing the excess skin, even though, you know, being 2.25, I didn't think I had any, to where the frenulum and the point of the gland's penis meets the shaft. Another type is specifically known as penile incision, which consists of cutting the underside of the penis down to the base. The argument for circumcision contains various reasonings, but oftentimes are built on variations of three premises. One being that circumcision helps in reducing HIV, STDs, and STIs. Another being for hygiene, and the third is penile cancer. Remember, these are the major three. Not an exhaustive compendium of listless medical idiocies, but a trilogy of terribly ridiculous quackery. Besides the fact that any god that asks his people to mutilate themselves for him doesn't garner worship, I want to discuss how child abuse is child abuse no matter the religious affiliation. Hypothetical example, if I worship Athena and take a knife to my daughter's arm to create a symbol out of a scar, I could be taken to prison for child abuse, or the act could be seen as a precursor to ritual sacrifice. Jews, Christians, Muslims, and a horde of other religionists cut off the ridge band, prepuce, of either sex, or parts of the clitoris, if not the whole fucking thing, for absolutely no medical reason. I feel ultimately that if such acts are performed for solely religious reasons, then the decision should be made at the age of legal adulthood. If this is a secular society, then religious surgery should be treated as body modification and forbidden till one is legally able to make one's own decisions. An individual has the right to practice their own religion and to raise their child in that religion, but rituals that involve unnecessary medical procedures shouldn't be decided by a child or the parent. 
If I founded a religion in which there was a ritual to remove both butt cheeks of my kid, I cannot, nor should I, be able to do that. The reason the lesser forms of circumcision, as practiced in the West, are argued for is because circumcision is an old tradition that has been performed on most of the individuals who are walking around. The medical evidence does not support the use of circumcision for anything besides religious duty. Individuals who justify the compulsory circumcision of their children, I call them cutters. Since one cannot ideally use religious reasons in a secular situation, cutters have sought out medical reasons to cut the kids, such as to prevent HIV in men. According to various studies performed, getting circumcised does help in reducing HIV. So long as condoms are used. The idea is that the membranes in the foreskin make it easier for bacteria or disease to enter, and that smegma, or penis cheese, would create a healthier environment for HIV, STDs, and STIs to enter into the body. The research barely reveals a correlation between circumcision and lower HIV rates, and one must always remember that correlation is not causation. Researchers have warned that they do not know why groups who are circumcised seem to have lower HIV and STD or STI rates than those who are uncut. There are other theories on the limited evidence of correlation, such as low alcohol consumption leading to lower rates of promiscuity, higher condom use, and access to modern health care and hygiene techniques. We can also apply this reasoning to female circumcision the form of removing the clitoral hood or tip of the clit. The excuse in some groups is that dimming sexual pleasure will tamper with the woman's libido so she is more protected from disease and dishonor. Research on circumcised female prostitutes, however, has shown a lower rate of HIV infection than prostitutes who are not. But I don't see anybody advocating to remove the clit from a woman. But also, like the research on men, the evidence barely demonstrates a correlation. All in all, surgery that's goal is a preemptive strike against an infection or disease of any sort is on par with removing the prostate or breast so cancer doesn't develop. Think of it as cutting out the tonsils or the appendix of a child to battle a future complication in adulthood. Seems reasonable. If I use those examples... I've heard people protest my assertion that circumcision isn't necessary on the grounds of hygiene. Reasons included are infections of the penis caused by bacteria. In the transcript, I list the diseases. I can't pronounce half of them, so I'm not even going to try. Smegma is penis cheese that can accumulate without proper washing. The infections I've listed are easily cured with a topical cream or an antifungal medicine. By the cutter's logic, I should remove my butt cheeks to prevent a buildup of poop so that I don't catch any kind of anal infection caused by lack of wiping. You know what? Also, my ears should be removed so that earwax buildup doesn't cause deafness or ear infections. Maybe I should remove my toes to prevent toe fungus or plantar warts. Maybe shave my head so I don't catch lice. Shave your pubes so you don't get crabs. Hygiene is a poor excuse to remove a part of someone's genitalia. You know, remove the nuts so you don't get testicular cancer. Especially when proper washing prevents these conditions, and there is medicine to cure it. Also, in the rare case of an infection requiring circumcision, there is a dorsal slit. A dorsal slit is basically a half-circumcision. It's a single incision along the upper length of the foreskin from the tip to the corona exposing the glands without removing any tissue. They also use this when the, the foreskin is too tight and it, and it causes uh, uh, 
major complications with the glans penis and peen and coming and fertility. This surgery is seen as an absolute last resort for aesthetic reasons. Circumcision was originally a body modification to show, to show one's religious or tribal affiliations. Others had neck or lip extensions. We now back up this religious surgery with flimsy medical reasons in order to keep the tradition alive. And I find it somewhat comical when Christians, specifically Catholics, are circumcised because it was once forbidden by the church. Only Jews are circumcised, and the thought was once that a good Christian cannot have anything in common with a denier of our Lord and Savior. Ultimately, the problem I have with circumcision is that I don't feel as much as I would in a sexual scenario. And this is debated whether or not the removal of the foreskin t takes 60% of the nerve endings with it. But the surgery does remove the cover of the glands pe penis, leading to desensitivity of the head and removing unnecessary genital parts from either gender to circumvent an instinct, satisfy a custom, or out of sheer hygienic laziness is fucking detestable. There is a body modification culture where far worse is done to a penis or vagina for aesthetic reasons, and the same people who profess the necessity of circumcision are the same people who damn this culture. I'm not a big fan of body modification either way. I mean, I have my ears pierced, but that's about it. But I do defend the idea of an individual's authority over their own body. It's my ultimate feeling on the matter. There is no reason for circumcision besides aesthetics or religious reasons, and both should be left as options for either gender at the age of legal adulthood. So always remember, keep your skirts up, your pants down, no matter who bends over, uncut feels better in your ass. Also, any suggested topics or any questions, you can always email me at adenorden at gmail.com. You can also go to the Facebook page, it's listed there, and you can hit the like button because I post all the research that I reference on the Facebook page. Ever wonder why genies are trapped in bottles? Because they're a bunch of goddamn drunks! And like all drunks, they'll talk to anyone who will listen until somebody puts a cork back in the bottle. So, want a little drunken genie nonsense? Then grab a bottle of whiskey and rub one out! Or tune into Nine Cents the first week of every month and catch my segment, I Dream of Jesse. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome to Agent Provocateur! I really have to figure out a new way to introduce this segment. I am your vivacious and lovely host, Darren Deicide. Hey, I get lots of mail all the time. Let's go through the mailbag, shall we? Ah. Well, well, what do we have here? This would be an email that comes from Lester Brown from Big Loins, Arkansas. And he asks, Dear Darren Deicide, I'm a fan of the show and follow your newswire, which you can find at facebook.com slash agentprovocateur on 9 cents. 
Information on the newswire is overwhelming and makes me look at the world differently. Because of it, I'm presented with a lot of questions. But the one that comes to mind most prominently is, if we acknowledge all these terrible things going on in the world, how exactly are we supposed to stop terrorism? Your pal, Lester. Thanks, Lester. I heard the food is fantastic in big loins. Oh, I'm only pulling your chain. I have to admit it. I'm really just setting this all up. There is no Lester and Big Loins. At least none that I've been in direct contact with. I'm setting this up because I do get people who do send many compelling emails. I have to admit, I am very impressed with some of you. Your sophistication in understanding the varying societies of the world is becoming notable. Why you gravitate towards this segment is beyond me. However, I had to fabricate this letter because when you do get emails, common themes start to appear. Concerns begin to consolidate and you see trends, and that's why I had to create this mock letter. You see, in the cluster of topics, one prevailing concern has popped up repeatedly, even if not expressed in a single question or single email. That is the question, what do we do to stop terrorism? A lot of those who follow the segment in the Newswire have rightfully brought this question up at least indirectly, and given the rising escalation of conflict in the Middle East, it's high time that this be addressed. I've devised a user-friendly three-point program that I believe can very effectively address this issue. So, let us begin. Darren Deicide's three-point program to stop terrorism. How do we stop terrorism? First, let's discuss what terrorism actually is. I wonder how many people have actually asked this question rather than just let some White House spokesperson gently shove their hand up their ass and puppet something out of their mouths. Merriam-Webster defines terrorism as, quote, the use of violent acts to frighten the people in an area as a way of trying to achieve a political goal. Okay. Random House Dictionary has three definitions. One, the use of violence and threats to intimidate or coerce, especially for political purposes. Very similar to Merriam-Webster. Two, the state of fear and submission produced by terrorism or terrorization. Three, a terroristic method of governing or of resisting a government. Well, we got two more definitions out of that one, and they all have prevailing themes. So perhaps we should go to some other rather normative and less abstract definitions. How does the United Nations define terrorism? Since 1994, the United Nations has defined terrorism as, quote, criminal acts intended or calculated to provoke a state of terror in the general public, a group of persons, or particular persons for political purposes. Again, very similar to the dictionary definitions. They go on to say, in any circumstance, terrorism is unjustifiable. Whatever the considerations of a political, philosophical, ideological, racial, ethnic, religious, or any other nature that may be invoked to justify them. Well, that's nice lip service, isn't it? And lip service is what the United Nations excels at. But let's move on. They all seem to be in agreement on one thing. 
Terrorism is the use of violence to threaten people towards a political outcome. The UN goes a step further in its consistency by labeling these acts as criminal. I'm all for that. I'm a big fan of international judicial bodies. New World Order? Sign me up. So, one does not have to be a political scientist or even nothing more than a layman to perhaps lay out what needs to be done to stop terrorism. However, in the grand tradition of culling the herd towards one opinion or another because they cannot discern an independent opinion of their own, I will hereby lay out my three-point agenda towards solving this problem. America, I am here for you. Point one. Stop patronizing terrorism. This is the most broad sweeping of all the points because it applies to all of you regardless of where your position is in life. Are you a mom flipping pancakes in the morning who tops it all off with her usual tuning into Fox News, sitting there and getting the latest official line on military conflicts that don't directly involve you? Looking up beheading videos for the shock value? Waving your flag every time your senator votes to bomb some marginally relevant country? Stop it! Disavow your support and unplug. Stop patronizing it. Even if you oppose these crazy jihadis who are running around lopping off heads, you don't have to repost their videos and show them to others. That's what they want you to do. You don't have to listen to what the public relations directors in the State Department say is your concern and what is a threat to your life. You're flipping pancakes! The biggest threat to your life is that the butter doesn't burn on the stove, okay? All these people are attempting to rope you into their demented game. Don't let them. It's a choice. Now, for the upper echelons of society, this primary agenda point goes for you too. Stop patronizing terrorism. If Israel levels Gaza and 2,000 plus civilians die in a major act of terrorism, don't support them. If the Saudi monarchy is running propaganda campaigns to recruit Muslims in the Middle East to Wahhabism, don't support them. Enough with the exceptionalism already. You may buy your own bullshit, but others don't. And believe me, that does not reflect well on how they judge you. And rightfully so. I only expect top-notch bullshit from the bullshit artists I associate with. Point two. This is going to perhaps be the toughest of all the points because it strikes to the heart of some of America's peculiarities on Americanism. But it also is perhaps the easiest to enact. Ready? Here it comes. If you want to stop terrorism, stop doing it. I know this is a radical concept, and perhaps many of you have never heard this argued before, but bear with me. I'm pretty sure stopping terrorism by not doing it may be one of the most effective ways to fight a war on terrorism. I said this would be one of the toughest points because America was founded very much on doing one thing and saying another. It's the sort of place where all men are created equal, and yet there could be laws that allowed slave masters to shoot their slaves. It's the sort of country where people could write stanzas about how people are born with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet Indians and citizens of Japanese descent could be thrown in concentration camps. 
Again, we may believe our own bullshit, but the rest of the world is not necessarily seeing it that way. The rest of the world sees hypocrisy when a state declares war on terrorism by means of terrorism. It's not that hard to see. Although most Americans are concerned with the maybe two people who have contracted Ebola, they somehow have forgotten the 130,000 plus Iraqis that have been killed by American forces over the past 20 or so years. Check out IraqBodyCount.org, a very interesting project that has been tallying, at least what it can find through news and civilian reports, an estimation of exactly how many Iraqis have died as a result of U.S. intervention. So, even though our general society doesn't care to look, everyone else is. And that doesn't bode well on the credibility front. So naturally, people fight fire with fire, and everyone turns out to be a gigantic hypocrite. Well, stop it. And on a side note, let me just get something out of the way here. A small percentage of you that follow the Newswire has seemed to misinterpret some of the information I post as some sort of tacit sympathy game, some sort of veiled agenda to skew perception on some issues. This is a common criticism by people who don't study media or history, and it amounts to little more than muckraking. So, let me make it clear as the high noon daylight. I would like nothing more than for the Middle East and everything in it to suddenly sink into a horrible black void never to be seen again by the entire existence of humanity. The world would be vastly improved by its sudden and total non-existence, okay? Are we on the level now? I post articles to help create a complete picture, a little something called objectivity, or as some others have called it, perspective. You should look into it. Let's go to my final point, one that has been argued incessantly by our more studied American scholars, to the chagrin of Capitol Hill's lackeys. One that our greatest thinkers had the foresight to see as a problem, even in America's most earliest incipient stages. One that, even on the philosophical level, our sagest and most astute writers have understood. Mind your own business. Don't expect anyone to hold your values. That's solipsism, even on the political level. Don't force your values upon them. That's an act of aggression that opens a Pandora's box that one mustn't complain about. Stay focused on your own problems, America. Chris Giles at Financial Times recently reported that the International Monetary Fund has ranked China over the United States as the world's largest economy. This was based upon wages, cost of living, GDP, and other factors. The Cato Institute and Canada's Fraser Institute recently did their annual report on economic freedom based upon five broad factors, including size of government, legal structure and security of property rights, access to sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and regulation of credit, labor, and business. America slipped to 12th among 152 countries beaten out by countries like Finland and United Arab Emirates. In 1996, we ranked second. We have enough of our own problems, and the solutions are not easy coming. Let me be so bold as to quote one of the founding fathers. James Madison was once quoted as saying, Of all the enemies to public liberty, war is, perhaps, the most to be dreaded, because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies, 
From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism can be traced in the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud, growing out of a state of war, and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. End quote. America has created its own secular missionary, trying to spread quote-unquote democracy to the world, hoping to make everyone realize that our way is the best way, gifts that we can bless other nations with, with if they just were shown the way. Fuck them! This is the Middle East. Those people couldn't grasp that concept if, if it ran up and smacked them in the forehead. It is a place of totalitarianism and extremism on all sides. This is what happens when people build their homes on some of the most valuable oil resources on planet Earth. These are the tenets of my simple, general, three-point platform to stop terrorism. Did it seem rather common sense? Yeah, well... Yeah. I may have said this in another episode, but I could be on to a run for the presidency in 2016 if this continues. Thank you for tuning into Agent Provocateur. Keep that mail coming, folks. Good night. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Morgan O'Shaughnessy, violist. I have <laughs> recently learned not anything else. <laughs> no, I'm a very talented musician whose disciplines we will cover, uh, hopefully, in a little bit of detail here shortly. Let's do a little, let, let's talk a little devil. <laughs> we, uh, do you self-identify as a Satanist? Very much, very much. Um... And it's kind of one of those things where the older I get, the more it's just like, oh my God, yes, yes, the style, <laughs> the aesthetic, the the sense of, because being a musician is, uh, well, to use the word narcissistic positively, it is a very <laughs> self-realizing profession. You know, the older you get, the more you find your voice. It's like you start off with, you know, all the all the little etudes and playing your scales and and your exercises, and then gradually you start to make things more and more your own. So it's really sort of piecing the ingredients of music together into a complete whole, which is you, and and which you then live with as a continuing sort of journey for the rest of your life. And it's very much the same with me for Satanism. It's the more, the more I build on the thoughts that I have, and the more that I draw from my own inspirations of my own past, the more I realize that Yes, this is a, 
a process of learning more about who I am through Satanism and more about how, I mean, really just as a, as a philosophy, how it just makes so much sense as a tool for learning more about yourself and then using the past to build, build towards a greater future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when were you first introduced to Satanism? <laughs> While I was living in San Francisco, oddly enough. Hey now. Yes, yes. So I went to the uh, Conservatory of Music in San Francisco, and I lived I lived in the Sunset, which is uh, a neighborhood below Golden Gate Park, kind of out in the ocean. The Sunset, ironically named because you could go up to three weeks without ever seeing the goddamn sun. It was just <laughs> always foggy. It's like you know, we had this joke, uh, why, why did the Spanish explorers sail by the bay for 300 years but without realizing it was there? Because they could never see it because of the goddamn fog. <laughs> so, so in my final year there, I was – let's see. I actually remember the exact occasion. Um, I was playing at a wedding at this Lutheran church across the street from my house. And I was talking with the other musicians. You know, usually, typical wedding, you get there 45 minutes early because the bride, the bride is just like bridezilla at that point. Mm-hmm. You show up. You look nice. You wait. You play the Pachelbel canon. You play – Jesu joy of man's desiring, and you leave 150 bucks later. And so there's a lot of downtime for discussion. And since we were all in the church and all of us were atheists, um, secular, free-thinking, whatever types, we were talking about uh, religion and the implications of religion. And somewhere in my subconscious, we are talking about scripture, somewhere in my subconscious I said, well, yeah, of course there's more than one Bible. Hell, there's even a satanic Bible. And I don't know where that came from, since I was unfamiliar with the work at the time. But... Uh, seeing the kind of raised eyebrows from my other musicians, I took that as a clue to, well, maybe you should know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I went home and uh, basically typed into you know, Google the Satanic Bible. And I got, I got, unfortunately, I'm ashamed to say, I got one of those kind of pagan sites where you download the thing for free. Mm-hmm. And I read it in one sitting. And <laughs> afterwards, I kind of went, Huh. And then I looked at the lamp and I like flicked my fingers at it and said, Baphomet, and imagined it exploding into flames. And I got quite a little chuckle out of that. Uh, but that was pretty much it. It was, you know, yet another one of those classic stories. If you read it and it just, it makes sense. So that was, that was the summer after I graduated from college. And I've read it since many times and bought my fair number of copies. Yeah. I passed up a first edition the other day. I'm kicking myself for this. I was in a used bookstore and I found a fucking first edition that looked like it had been through, I don't know, the Vietnam War or something, but it was there. And then I thought, well, that's great, but I already have this other pile of books. And then I went back 10 minutes later, it was gone. <laughs> you had your opportunity and you I lost did. it. It even had that sources page in the beginning that I've only nice. seen scans of. Anyways, that was that. How does the the classical trained musician – uh, see Satanism. Hmm. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, of course, I can speak for myself. I can't mm-hmm. necessarily speak for others. Classical right. musicians. No, I expect you to speak for every way. single musician. <laughs> Here's what we all think. Yeah, I will I've program known. all of their minds in my dungeon in the next ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, and this is especially poignant to me because I just got off of a weekend playing the Vivaldi Gloria which is written by Vivaldi, of course. Uh, It's one of his most famous works. It was one of the earliest uh, musical forms of the mass that was written. It's like he wrote it 80 or 90 years before any other composer started really 
touching the mass as a or the other requiem or the requiem mass as an art form of like a 12 or 13 step composition that covers various parts of the mass and so it's like there there is no ifs ands or buts about it this is jesus music <laughs> through yeah. and through and it's in latin uh, and i was i was having i had a lot more trouble in the past squaring myself with this one and also for speaking for a lot of other classical musicians a lot of us are heavily employed by churches uh, especially singers you know it's like that's what you do is you go out and you get your church gig and sorry your, your church gig and uh, you either as some of my friends who sing for the unitarians say you praise the great big spirit of nothing or <laughs> some of the people in the Catholic Church, you know, you sing on your stay for ages and ages. So it's a real issue. But I find if the composer is good, the music speaks for itself. And it speaks to the individual. And this is also an area that I'm beginning to experiment with now as a form of greater magic ritual within a concert setting. So when I was playing the Glory last weekend, I was completely enraptured. First of all, Vivaldi is my second favorite composer. Uh, so there, there's no problems there with getting an emotional response out of me playing his music. Mm-hmm. And also, I had recently decided, heck, within the context of greater magic, you set aside all rational intellectual thinking. You do all that beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then you are just in the moment, pure emotional responses and behaviors and workings and so i thought what would happen if for a moment i just let the power of this music take over it's like i'm still i've done all my practicing i I know all my fingerings i know where my bow is going to be going i'm listening for intonation and making sure that i'm playing active chamber music with everybody on stage and it's it's still an ongoing experiment in process but the ability to temporarily believe in anything, it's kind of like that old saying of Satanists, if, it's, if you enter into self-deceit knowing it's self-deceit, is it really self-deceit? Right. And so from a musical standpoint, I actually find a great deal of fulfillment in playing these larger, large scales, especially Catholic works. The, the Protestant ones are just so unimaginative. I mean, the Protestant religion, I think they really lost a lot of style when they kind of threw Latin out the window. And all those things. You know, there's a great deal of esotericness involved with Catholicism and correspondingly with the works that were written about it musically. So there's a lot there just in the almost the ritual trappings of Catholicism for me to keep myself interested in. Well, I, I do have to say that I, I look at I look at classic music and it's uh, by and large primarily Christian foundation. The same way that I look uh, at gospel music, I am mm-hmm. I'm a huge, huge fan of gospel music. Um, I mean, it's the birth of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And so, when I listen to gospel music, I don't listen to it for whatever message that the particular song was created for. I look at it in what it does to me emotionally. I mm-hmm. I connect what is relevant in my life at that time or that I've experienced or maybe something that I'm looking forward to with what the music incites in me. And that's why I really love classical music, especially like Mozart's Requiem, for example. Oh my God. Where it, <laughs> Don't get it, me started on that one. Yeah, it surges emotion 
uh, it wells up within me until I just want to explode. And I, I know where it comes from. I know what it was meant to do, at least for the, the, the individual paying Mozart for it, and maybe even for him for all I know. But for me, it it's very much a different thing. So I don't, <laughs> I really don't care where music comes from. I care what it does to me. Yes. And especially in a ritual scene, um, that's all that matters. You know, you, no one has to explain anything away. No one has to justify anything in a ritual. It is what you need it to be at that moment. Yes. So that's, that's really exciting. Let me ask you really quick here. When, what set you down this path rather than being anything else? Hmm. Musical. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've, I've been, Hmm. So here's a kind of a pet peeve of mine. If you look on a lot of performer biographies, especially these, you know, hotshot, young, traveling, playing a solo with Berlin Phil this week, playing with New York Phil next week. Anyways, they all say, began formal studies at the age of four. I, I can't, <laughs> that bullshit. <laughs> it's like you began being babysitted by some, babysat by somebody at four. Who was showing you how to play notes on the violin? Yeah. By and large. You couldn't even hold it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know what they do in the. So I was raised in something called the Suzuki method, which is not actually a Buddhist cult. It is a, <laughs> it is a uh, pedagogical method invented by Shinichi. Uh, I can't pronounce his name. Shinichi Suzuki in the mid in the mid 20th century. And he had enormous success training children at very early age uh, in Japan where he was, uh, training them. Because the interesting thing is, is that almost all, and this has now been proven by by studies uh, in neurology, almost all children are born with so-called perfect pitch. You know, the ability to recognize any pitch for what it is, and then to be able to. Uh, eventually, you learn like the letter names: F sharp, G. That's true. C. Yes, it is. They're all, and I read this in a book by Oliver Sacks, who is a magnificent author. Uh, he's written many. He's a, he's a neurologist, amateur pianist. Who's written many wonderful books. So almost all children have this perfect pitch, but if it's not sustained and developed by about age four or five, you begin to lose it. So mm -hmm. this is right in the Suzuki age of when they get started listening. And within the Suzuki method, you listen to all of your songs that you're learning. You listen and you listen and you listen over and over and over again on loop. It's like my parents. I don't know how they survived. You know. We lived in the middle of absolute nowhere in Northern California, so you had to drive a half an hour to get gas or to get anywhere. So every time we drove, we were listening to Mississippi, stop, stop, Mississippi, stop, stop, Mississippi, you know, all these <laughs> brain-numbing little <laughs> tunes and ditties that you learn by ear. And so ultimately, with the Suzuki method, you, you learn how to play by ear very young. So you know, if you take any well-trained Suzuki kid, six or seven years old, and you play them a tune on any instrument, they'll pick up their little violin and play it right back to you. It's really quite freaky. So I was one of these. Uh, so violin was just sort of something I did from the time I was four until well, now. And I started off with this little bitty violin that could fit inside of my lunchbox, actually. That's how I would take it to school every day, is I'd have my peanut butter sandwich and my violin stuck inside my lunchbox. And... It was just sort of something I did without thinking about it. And my parents, they got me into it because 
I was always making <laughs> I was always making really funny noises as a child, you know, kind of humming to myself. And really? all my older sisters thought I was batshit crazy, and well, you know, their opinion <laughs> still holds. But <laughs> anyways, uh, my my parents thought, well, he's he's got all these sounds in him. Why don't we give him a violin and see what happens? And I. For the first two lessons, I hated it because it's violin is really hard to make it sound good when you first start. You know, it's like yeah. you touch the goddamn thing and it screams. <laughs> it's like, uh, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so, but, then, but then after after I basically figured out my shit and how to make a quasi-good sound on it, I just kind of took off. And it it became something to where my first my first language of making noises and making sounds and experimenting with with different tonalities. It gave me a voice and a tool for my voice. Uh, and I didn't actually make that connection until I was in college. And I heard a piano piece by somebody named John Adams, who's a one of the great American modern composers. He wrote this piece called Phrygian Gates, which is a half an hour long monologue for solo piano, in which there's just all these repeated little patterns and all these phases and all these bangings and crashings and, and little runs. And it was like, oh my God, that was the music inside my head when I was like three years old. And and so it, it kind of all came full circle, this minimalism, this, this identifying with patterns and trying to repeat them in sound. Wow. So that's – and then as, as I, I picked up the violin and then I just sort of kept adding an instrument a year until I got to this current state in which I basically rent an apartment to keep all my gear in and then I <laughs> sleep everywhere else because there's, there's no room left over there. All right, so give me a list here of instruments that you would consider yourself uh, proficient in. Well, violin and viola. Well, I should say viola and violin. We covered that one <laughs> earlier off the air. Yeah. Uh, viola is kind of like the violin's really sexy older sister. Uh, I dark, like that. Mysterious, you know, kind of, kind of like that. You know that's like that classic Scottish girl look with like raven black hair and freckles and piercing blue eyes? That's a viola. Mm. That's a veal, as opposed to like this, you know, blonde little kind of annoying Danish, high voiced Danish girl. Who's the, <laughs> right. no, no offense to Danish people. <laughs> oh God! Hey, yeah. mail can be sent to uh, Invo and Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Please email your correspondent. Anyways, <laughs> so so viola was initially something that. I did for chamber music, which is playing for, with other people. And then I very quickly fell in love with the voice and then pursued it solely as a professional instrument through my later training in high school at a boarding school and then also at college, a conservatory. I exclusively played viola, but viola, in the meantime, also violin and Baroque viola and Baroque violin because they really are separate instruments. They're set up completely differently. They have, they're tuned to, to a different pitch and the bow is completely different. So... Viola broke viola, violin broke violin. Also viola da gamba, which is kind of a cross between a guitar and a cello. Whoa. It's a little bit of a lute. And you bow it. It's an ancient instrument. It predates the violin. And those come in all shapes and sizes. I play two different kinds of gamba. And, uh, of course, I, I, I play enough guitar to be able to get by like a Celtic jam session, if mm. needs be. And also play tenor banjo and five-string banjo and uh, bassoon. Oddly enough, I had a bassoon fling when I was in high school just because it sounded funny. <laughs> I actually got pretty good at it. And also, I play Highland bagpipes, which are the great big noisy ones. Which oh, I love them! Yes, oh god, I love those too. But 
uh, I initially I wanted I wanted to start playing bagpipes when I heard an Ilan bagpiper, which is the Irish model, which is much more indoor, kind of civilized, moody instrument. But uh, then I found out how much those things fucking cost. <laughs> and I bought a set of Highland bagpipes. And as it turned out, Highland bagpipes paid my way through <laughs> classical music conservatory. Nice. Because as soon as they found out in the conservatory that I was a bagpiper, the gigging service says, oh, my God, people call us several times a year asking for a bagpiper. Yeah. We'd be our official conservatory bagpiper. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I just <laughs> spent years of my life training to get into this place on viola, and you want me to play? Anyways. <laughs> and I also conduct and sing, and I do quite a lot of music arranging. Oh, and I also play a Norwegian instrument called a Hardanger fiddle. I'm just getting started on that. And also a Swedish instrument called a nickel harpa, which is wow. kind of a cross between your grandfather's crackly old fiddle and a typewriter. <laughs> it's a truly wonderful unique bizarre instrument it's the same range as a viola except it has a keyboard stuck to the neck so instead of what? actually touching the strings with your fingers you're playing this keyboard and you have a little tiny bow that's about a half a foot long and you kind of tuck the thing into your armpit and it's has all these sympathetic strings so it sounds like it's in the cathedral Oh, that's crazy! I'm sure I'm. Oh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few things. Oh, I also have a didgeridoo that I like. Correcting. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, I dig that. Uh, holy oh, shit! Okay, so I mean, wh what's your favorite? I mean, your your primary realm of study of, of is, is viola, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's that's who and what you are primarily. Is there a <laughs> is there a, a a big financial future in that? Yes, yes. Um, this is an interesting time for classical music because the forms of employment are changing a lot. The, 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 the generation that's older than I am, there were, especially in America after World War II and even on up into the 80s, there were all of these orchestra jobs. And really what you did is you went off to conservatory and you just practice, practice, practice your scales, learn how to play in tune and in time without really having to worry about being your own producer or being your own agent or finding your own gigs. The assumption being if you learn how to be a really good technician, then you go off and you win an orchestra job, which has a tenure and retirement and health care and paid vacations and all these wonderful things. Those jobs still exist. But even for the ones that are really not that good, as in no tenure, not a lot of benefits, maybe only $40,000 a year, for every one opening, there are up upwards of 300 applicants who are all trained at conservatory level. Who've been taking these auditions. Like people, there's a whole class of people who fly all over the States pretty much year round taking these orchestra auditions, which it's, it's really tough. And... John Cage, who was a, a uh, experimental music composer in the 20th century, he kind of wrote it all off by saying that the um, the results of your auditions in these cases are largely determined by what the judges ate for breakfast, <laughs> <laughs> which is true to an extent because if you think about it, you know you you're playing orchestra excerpts, which you're just playing a small chunk of a symphony, and you're not even playing the whole symphony part because you're obviously one person, so you're playing like the viola part. A Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It sounds really stupid to be just sitting there on stage going da 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 da, da 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 da. Where's the timpani? You know, and 
So it's very it's impossible to technically perfect these. So if you get a room full of 300 people who've te- all technically perfected playing alone on stage this silly little part, you know, it's yeah, yeah. it's it's tough. So the orchestra jobs are really kind of going away in that sense. Also, it doesn't help that orchestras are going bankrupt. Oh, but there are all sorts of wonderful other areas. There, I mean, there's, of course, the whole crossover realm. Like Yo-Yo Ma playing with Silk Road comes to mind. Um, uh, oh, yeah. And Yehudi Menuhin is a violinist. He had he had quite a bit of collaboration with, I think it was Ravi Shankar. Anyways, there are – basically, it boils down to as, as a classically trained musician now, you really – you can go for the orchestra jobs or you can get like a string quartet together and – make a go of being an ensemble and touring around, or you kind of become an entrepreneur. I know a guy, a friend of mine, who graduated from conservatory, and then he started playing in bars in San Francisco. Just kind of like Monday nights. So, so say he, and he called it classical revolution. So where Monday nights from 7 to 10 p.m. at this little cafe, anybody who wanted to would just show up and start sight-reading quartets in the middle of this par, bar. And it'd be like, why is there a Mozart string quartet being played while people are sitting around, like in this case, in this place in San Francisco, smoking pot, drinking beer, you know, making out. Like basically, this guy went out and he found all the grungiest places he could think of, and he started bringing his friends there and just sight reading music. And yeah. that since grown to an international organization, Classical Revolution, uh, and they do concerts all over the globe now. And uh, people are turning a lot to house concerts and small, small venues because a lot of this music. The reason they call it chamber music is because it was it was initially designed to be played in small places, you know, smaller rooms. So people are musicians are re-embracing that aesthetic and creating these really cool, exclusive little house concert series for themselves. But really, you kind of have to create it as you go. And I've found a lot of work making concerts, but I've also found a lot of work doing film scores and also uh, playing for as a session musician for. Uh, all sorts of bands ranging from death metal. I recently did a, a, a song for a Swedish death metal band and also uh, like a punk band, punk bands. I've done a lot of work for punk bands and for kind of basic indie chick rock sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. And then, and then, you know, there's always teaching because especially if you live in a, a kind of a affluent yuppie neighborhood, like I do, there are all these parents who want you to teach their little demonlings. <laughs> so I know some players, you know, they, they have 45 students and they make 80,000 bucks a year just having the yeah. teaching little kids G major scales and where to put their fingers on the, on the violin. So I, I totally respect that. It, it's a little bit inspiring. It, it, it's the traditional life of the starving artist, except you're not starving. <laughs> <laughs> If you're playing it right, I guess. Yes. If you're talented yeah. enough. Uh, well, would it be okay if, if we shared some of your performance with uh, the audience? Yes, gladly.
so let me ask you uh if for for all of those listening uh the benefit of them where can they sort of look online to to maybe learn a little bit more about you or maybe book you for a gig if you're available or to take a lesson or you know what have you maybe just stalk you <laughs> Well, there's all sorts of fodder for stalking me online out there. <laughs> Strange things. Um, well, there is my website, which is actually due. It's it's going to be receiving a very major overhaul coming around the corner. It's sort of one of those things where I've fought a very valiant losing battle for years to make my <laughs> website. And it's just I'm to the point of like, fuck it. This still looks terrible. I'm going to have somebody do it. So, and that is www moshalto m-o-s-h-a-l-t-o dot com and that comes from alto is the French word for viola and Morgan O'Shaughnessy my, my name so moshalto it well, sounds a bit like some very badly cooked form of English potatoes I suppose but <laughs> and I do have somewhat of a somewhat of a scattered thing on YouTube I am going to be I have a couple of albums actually that are going to be coming out. I, I have a really interesting one that I'm that I'd like to release next. I'm looking at February. It's actually a an all nickel harpa album. So nickel harpa is again the Swedish instrument that I mentioned, and I have been learning a whole bunch of music from Canada on it, from Quebec, which in Quebec they have their own very fascinating tradition of folk music that goes along with dances that are unique to each tune. So it's not exactly like contra dances where you can you can kind of pick a set of steps and then put whatever music over it. In the Quebecois tradition, all of the music and the rhythms are very specific. And I've been learning a lot of these, and they call them crooked tunes because the math doesn't add up. So say you have like a section that's eight bars long, another section that's eight bars long, and then and then it all kind of eats its own tail and you kind of predictable sounding folk music. This stuff is really unpredictable. It's like you may have one section that's four and a half bars long that repeats itself three times and then one three bar bridge and then one 15 bar B part and then one like little tag in a different key that you add. So it's really, it's really interesting stuff. And I'm playing it <laughs> on an instrument that has no business involving itself with that folk tradition, <laughs> but I think it sounds pretty good. So I'm just sort of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it, is it like a, a mild injection of jazz in that case? Um, hmm, good question. Not really. No, it's hmm. it's almost a bit more. It sounds a bit more gypsy influenced, even though it's not. Oh. Uh, the Quebecois tradition of dancing is actually a tradition of step dancing while you play. And also uh, having the so-called mouth music, mm -hmm. where you're, you're, you have these these vocalizations in French that go along with whatever you're playing, and so a lot of the phrases are actually informed by literally how long, how much music you can sing in one breath. <laughs> wow. So it, it kind of fits the human voice. It's a fascinating aesthetic, and there are a couple of specialists in this music here in Southern Oregon that that I'm going that I'm working on. I've been working on this music with, and so for whatever. As startlingly geographically removed as it's going to be, it is going to be actually a pretty honest representation of this this tradition. Yeah. And I have a pianist who lives in Venice that we're going to be collaborating with them on a couple of albums. We we actually have a CD that we've that we've made and released, but we haven't paid for yet. So. 
that, that will be released on the Tactus label. And that's kind of a strange compilation of Italian, modern Italian classical music that I was sponsored by the, uh, the country to actually go over there and learn and perform. So that will be coming out. But again, all of this will kind of be visible on my website yeah. as, as I release it. Uh, and that's moshalto.com. Yes, moshalto.com. And th that also has a performance calendar and a link for contact. And I, I perform upwards of 100 times a year just around. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's pretty easy to, yeah, to, to come hear me perform or to book me for a performance. I, I also have a number of colleagues who I collaborate with for string quartets and for small orchestras and things to where you can – you can pretty much get you know whatever you want. If you want me to come play for your wedding or your ritual or your your wake or you know, whatever. <laughs> Very cool. Um, I definitely recommend everyone uh, do yourselves a favor. Uh, first of all, you should, as a human being, uh, connect with classical music. However, if you have not been properly introduced, uh, check out a. Uh, Check out uh, moshalto.com and see from another Satanist uh, classical music through their own performance, uh, a bit of their ear and a bit of their eyes. It is, uh, it is really wonderful. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, until we can chat again, I am looking forward to those uh, albums being released. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 Cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Mondays via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. Actually, not Spotify. <laughs> so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember that the only way this podcast is going to continue is if you continue to share it. Thank you for your interaction. You guys mean everything to this podcast. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan! Bye. Uh -huh.